Well, good evening. My name is Ben Milner, and I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Salem. And want to add my welcome to to Jonah's. Um, I know that there are probably some some students here that are new, and because uh, I know some schools are starting tomorrow, and so we want to welcome you especially. Um, that's probably the shortest reading of scripture we've ever had here, so don't get used to that if this is your first time. I usually take on more uh, of a passage than that, but this is the last part of James. So to, uh, next Sunday is our um, last, or is our new our new sermon series in the Psalms. So we end James, and then we go to the Psalms next week, and uh, and next week will be our last week in this building. And then after that, we're going to go back downtown to Christ Moravian Church, where we usually meet. Calvary. Calvary. <laughs> there is a Christ Moravian, so don't show up at Christ Moravian. <laughs> they do not want to see us all show up there. So um, a lot of letters or uh, when you write an email or something like that, and you end it, you end it on an upbeat note. You know, you say, uh, take care, or I hope you're doing well, or very warmly. Um, but James, as we've seen, is not like most people. And so the way he ends uh, his letter in verse 20 is, whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. So not much love or blessings or any of that stuff, but save your soul from death is the way he ends his letter. And uh, if, you've, if you study James very much, you can kind of expect that from him. This is a guy who said that you have, you have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. So he doesn't pull any punches. He's... Not at all sentimental. Uh, he's very, very realistic. He's very harsh in a way, but he's also very loving. And the reason he says this is, is not to be mean or something like that or cruel uh, or punishing. But he knows that the, the people in his churches that he's writing to are in a dangerous position where they're believing lies. Uh, and they're believing uh, all sorts of terrible things about themselves. They're forgetting truths about themselves. And so he does this so that um, we would not lose our grip on the truth. Um, that's why he says this about wandering from the truth and saving your soul from death. Because our minds kind of meander into these familiar ruts, these patterns of thought that are not healthy. And so James is correcting that by saying um, we need to bring each other back from that place. We're, our soul can get into such a bad place with our thinking that um, you actually need to be brought back by somebody else because you can't do it yourself. And that's how he's going to end the letter, by talking about those two things. So wandering and then bringing back uh, are the two parts of the sermon. Wandering from the truth and bringing back each other's souls from a place of death. So first of all, uh, if any of you wanders from the truth, verse 19... Uh, wander is a strange word for something that has to do with truth. We don't usually think of wandering and truth put together. So, for instance, you really can't wander from believing that 2 plus 2 is 4 or that the earth is spherical. You don't wander from such things. And uh, you, you don't wander um, even from you know, things like there is a God or I am a human. And so if you think of this as wandering from the truth in the sense of like the Apostles' Creed, which we read earlier, it's, it's not so much that it, it has to do with that. But I think more than that, it's about what we're believing at any moment. And a lot of times, our minds lose their grip on reality about who we are. And like I said earlier, we believe all these things about us that are not true. Um, so in the New Testament, the word wandering is used 
in association with the truth a lot. It's not just here. Um, 1 Peter 2.12. Peter says, you were wandering like sheep, but you have returned to the shepherd of your soul. Matthew 12, Jesus says in this parable, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has wandered, does he not leave the 99 and go in search of the one? And if you know much about sheep and you've seen sheep act, they just wander away. They don't know how to control themselves. And so in Matthew 24, 3, Jesus says, see that no one causes you to wander. And he's referring back to that sheep metaphor. Or Titus 3, 3, Paul says, we ourselves... We were once foolish and wandering, Paul says about himself. So he's not just saying you wander, he's saying I wander too. And then in verse 19, if anyone wanders from the truth. So Jesus, Peter, uh, Paul, James, they all talk about this idea of wandering from the truth. And think again about a sheep getting lost in the fog and it has no idea where it is. It has no idea how to get back home. It may be about to fall off a cliff. And that's what he's talking about here where you, you get kind of lost. And I think we all get lost at times. A friend of mine once emailed me, I feel the darker side of my psychosis coming on, and it's like I'm grabbing at sands of time being poured out in front of me. As I reach for another handful of sand, I lose the grains from my last worthless attempt. My best efforts add up to less than nil. I cannot fend off this invisible foe. And, uh, you know, that, um, that was a scary email to get. I, I, I just immediately started praying for this guy. Um, made me afraid for this guy. That uh, he was, and he had a, he had a, a very strong uh, mental disability. No doubt about that. But, but I would say that just as his mind was wandering in a, in a sea of fear and anxiety, we can also get lost. Um, sometimes to that same extent as he did. But uh, Israel got very lost. They literally wandered in the desert for 40 years because they forgot who they were and they forgot who God was. They were wandering like sheep. And their minds also lost touch with reality and began to give in to fear and anxiety. And so in Deuteronomy 1.29, Israel is refusing to enter the promised land where God told them they could go and that God would fight battles for them and God would take the land for them. But Israel's not believing that Because they're so afraid of the Canaanite people that they saw that are so big and so strong. And the Canaanites have more armor than they do. They have better weapons than they do. And so Israel's looking at the Canaanites and they're terrified. And God says to them in Deuteronomy 129, I told you not to be afraid of the Canaanites. I told you I would fight for you. Just as I I did in Egypt when I overthrew the Pharaoh and his empire. Before your very eyes. And in the wilderness, you saw me carry you and feed you and give you water in the desert. And yet, in spite of all these things, you did not believe that I was going before you. You did not believe I was going before you in the fire by night and in the cloud by day. And that's more of the kind of wandering that James is talking about, where you forget uh, who God is, and you forget, because you forget who God is, you forget who you are. Uh, John Calvin, in the very first line of his institute, says the, the, the two things that we most need to know are ourselves and God, and they're inextricably linked. So if you lose touch with who you are, you lose touch with who God is. If you lose touch with who God is, you lose lose touch with who you are. And that's what what Moses is saying to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy. Uh, You're forgetting who you are. You know, we think that it's, um, we Westerners, people who grew up in 
uh, the western part of the, um, the globe, you know, North America, uh, Northern Europe, uh, that kind of western world as we call it. We think that um, <clears throat> it's just self-evident that all human beings know that we are valuable of inestimable worth. Um, and we just think that it's obvious that every human being is created equal, that we have these inalienable rights that were given by our creator, that were each these priceless masterpieces. We just think that everyone knows that, and it's very obvious, <clears throat> and who would deny it, you know, universal human rights and all that stuff. Um, but the fact is that that idea comes only from the Bible. It comes from the Jewish tradition. Um, the Jews alone in the ancient world believed that idea, that every single man, woman, and child was equally valuable and infinitely valuable. And so in Genesis 1.27, you have this ethical miracle where God says to these enslaved and downtrodden people, the Jewish people who had been oppressed for hundreds of years in Egypt and thought that they were told they were nothing. And the Pharaoh was like God. And they were like dirt. And God says to them, no, I created each one of you in my image. In my image, I created you all, male and female. Because, you know, the females back then would have certainly thought they were not the same as males. So God just highlights that. And this is a massive revolution in human anthropology, the way that we think of ourselves, is this idea that every human being is made uniquely in the image of God. And really without that idea, human rights don't make any sense. They just, you can't base them on anything. But this image of God, which was applied only to pharaohs and only to kings, uh, David, King David, as the king of Israel says, no, it's not just about kings. It's about every single Israelite, every human being. In Psalm 8.5, David sings to God, You have made all humans a little bit lower than the heavenly beings and crowned us all with glory and honor. And again, we just think that that's obvious to everyone, that we would all think that. But no, in, in probably most parts of the world today, that would not be obvious. Uh, that's not the idea. Um, I wake up each day being a Westerner, and I forget... Um, that what Psalm 139.13 says about me is true, where, where God says, uh, I, was, I knit you together in your mother's womb, and you are fearfully and wonderfully made. I mean, how many of us believe that most of the time? We so easily fall back into thinking what people say about us is the truth about us. But God says, I, I want you to stop that wandering. James says, I want you to... Fight that spiritual amnesia that you forget who you are. You forget who God is. You forget who you are. There's a great scene in The Lion King, which I heard um, recently somebody said was based on Shakespeare's Hamlet. So if you know anything about that, please uh, talk to me. I would love to know if that's, if that's really true. Um, but this guy who said that, he knew a lot of what he's talking about. So I'm going to assume that's true. But anyway, in The Lion King, the figure of Hamlet is played by Simba, who is the young prince who is supposed to be king, but he's forgotten who he is. And so uh, Simba is uh, met by this uh, prophet who's a, who's a mandrel. That's a kind of like a, bam- a baboon. And this prophet's name is Rafiki. And Simba has forgotten who he is, and Rafiki says, I want you to look at this reflection of yours in this pool right here. So he takes him to a little pool, and Simba looks down into the pool, and Rafiki says, see, he lives in you. And slowly, uh, instead of Simba's face, his father's face, Mufasa, comes over that image of Simba's face. And so now he's looking at his father's face in the pool, and his father's face begins to talk to him. And Mufasa says, Simba, 
And Simba says, Father. And Mufasa says, have you forgotten me? And Simba says, no, how could I? And Mufasa says, but you have forgotten. You've forgotten who you are, and so you've forgotten me. And Simba says, it's just not who I, I'm just not who I used to be. And this is what Mufasa says. And as you, as you hear this, think of God saying this to you. And Mufasa says, you are my son and a true king. Do not forget who you are. And that's exactly what James is talking about. When you wander from the truth, you're, you're forgetting who God has made you to be. And um, someone said recently, we are an amalgamation of all the things people have said about us over the course of our whole life. And if that's true, then how desperately do we hear things like what the scriptures say about us? Um, that you are made fearfully and wonderfully, knit together in your mother's womb by God, imagined in all your unique particularity by God. Not just a clone or just a generic human being, um, but you with your name, all of your name, all five parts of your name in some cases. Uh, you are uniquely and wonderfully made by God. And wandering from the truth is denying that you are made in the image of God. And uh, it's thinking you're an accident. And a lot of voices in our culture tell us we're just an animal. That's all we are. That um, we are an animal organism, which is a new term that people are using for the fetus. They now call it an animal organism. And they act like, uh, you know, we came out of nowhere and we're going to nowhere. And, and believing that is spiritual amnesia. Those of us who know uh, what the scriptures say about us, uh, we cannot buy into that lie, that that's who we are. My friend told me the other night that there's a difference between self-deception and self-delusion. And that self-deception is where you eat a cookie and the crumbs are still in your face. And someone says, did you eat that cookie? And you lie and say, I didn't eat that cookie. That's, we do that all the time. That's self-deception. Self-delusion is where you eat the cookie, the crumbs are on your face. Someone says, did you eat that cookie? And you say, I didn't. And you believe it. It's not a lie. Because you've actually deluded yourself into thinking that you didn't do that. And if you deceive yourself enough times, you'll become self-deluded. And if you apply that to wandering, what that means is you can wander so far that you can enter into a kind of perpetual state of self-delusion. And that moves us to our next point, because I would say that that perpetual state of self-delusion, where you don't even realize what you're saying anymore, because you've said it so many times, that's what he would call the death of the soul. I know that's a really strong phrase in verse 20. uh, Whoever brings back the sinner from his wanderings will save his soul from death. And that is the sinner's soul, not the person who does the bringing back. But... It's a strong statement to say that the soul could die. And that's the whole reason that James is saying any of this, is because he knows the real possibility that a human soul could actually completely disintegrate if you believe enough lies about yourself and you completely forget who you are. You could permanently enter into that state. And so that now brings us to the second point, bringing back the wanderer's soul from death. And... uh, This idea of completely forgetting who you are or entering into a rut where you keep deluding yourself, it reminded me of a a counselor who I once um, was visiting. And the counselor was telling this patient um, struggling with addictive behavior. The counselor said, if you keep choosing to believe these lies about yourself 
And in this case, you know, it was one thing. I won't say what it was, but it could be something like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm about to completely fall apart or fail. Uh, what I'm about to flunk the class. Or I'm about to, my business is about to fail. I'm growing fat. People are rejecting me. My life's going nowhere. I have to prove myself. Any of these things that create anxiety. She was saying, the counselor was saying, if you keep choosing to believe that lie about yourself, then uh, your anxiety will grow. And the more times you think that, the more anxiety will grow. And if you keep doing that, you can just keep giving into these compulsions. Your behavior will try to fix that, and it will just, you know, re-trigger those lies. And she said that over time, your actual thoughts, you know, physiologically, will begin to cut deeper grooves into your brain. And so it will just keep, your, your thought will just keep following that groove. And if it gets deep enough, then perhaps it can't even get out of that groove. If you just keep buying into these lies. And so it's really important to fight that and to help each other fight that. If you see someone going down that path, that's what James would call the death of the soul. Where you're enslaved to all these lies that you say about yourself and other people say about you. But a lot of times it's what you think other people say about you and you multiply them. Uh, You maximize them. You catastrophize. And so if you keep suppressing the truth about who you are and who God is... Like things like, um, I don't have to be grateful to anyone because I'm a self-made man. That's a lie. Uh, I'm not loved by God every single day. My whole life is a mistake. It's a lie. Or I don't make any mistakes and, and you're always to blame or they're always to blame. That's another lie. If we keep believing these things and suppressing the truth, then James would say it's like a, like a napkin when you're... Uh, at a restaurant or something, you just keep you know, using that napkin. It just eventually kind of disintegrates and just breaks into nothing. If you just keep doing that with your mind and going over those same grooves again and again, you just, your soul disintegrates. A pastor named Kim, Tim Keller that I love says, the more self-centered and self-absorbed and self-pitying and self-justifying people become, the more breakdowns will occur relationally, psychologically, but even physically. They will go deeper and deeper into denial about the source of their problems. This is why it's so important that we bring each other back from wandering. Because so often we don't see this happening to ourselves. And the church is a place where we can do that. Where the, the movement towards the death of the soul can be reversed. And it's one of the few places that people do that. I think it's a, in counseling is a great way to help, but not everybody can go to counseling. And so you have a church where we do that for each other. Um, we help each other believe the truth. You know, in the, in the very beginning, God told Adam and Eve, if you eat that fruit, you, your soul will die. And uh, we know they ate the fruit. And they didn't immediately physically die, but they did experience the following symptoms, which I would believe would be what... Moses was saying, this is what it means to die. They immediately experienced shame. They put the fig leaf over them to try to cover that shame. They, they immediately hid from God. They didn't think that God was safe anymore, and so they hid. They refused to accept responsibility for what they had done. They, they, they each blamed the other. So they blame shifted. They then began to fight over who was in control. Um, they, they, they had this perpetual battle they were locked into. Adam and Eve, but then all humans that came after them, all marriages, all relationships that came after them, and then their work also, um, and, and childbearing became kind of futile and meaningless. And I would say that that progression of events 
in Genesis 3 is what it means for a soul to die. Um, God says, in the day you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. And indeed, they set themselves on this course of slow disintegration. And the Bible often uses the word perishing um, to describe that disintegration. It's probably the most common word used for um, someone who is slowly becoming less and less human. It's perishing. And this is why, once again, bringing back is, is so important. That we bring each other back. Verse 20, whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering or her wandering will save the, the wanderer's soul from death. And again, the scary thing about wandering is you don't know you're wandering. And so you need other people to be regularly in contact with you. And if you get isolated, then you're not going to have anyone to help you bring you back to sanity. Because we tell each other things like my life is worthless, it's going nowhere, no one likes me, I have to earn their approval, I have to keep working and working and working to justify my existence, all these things. And so the friends have to uh, contradict these, these lies, these voices. And really, it doesn't have to be a best friend. It can just be someone that you meet with and say, we're going we're gonna to hold each other accountable to this. And we're going to tell each other the lies that we believe, and then we're going to speak back the truth to each other. And in my experience as a pastor, the people that I have seen that are the most healthy, that are most flourishing uh, as human beings, are the ones where they're meeting people regularly. They're, they're meeting for breakfast or taking walks together. They're praying for each other. Um, they are asking each other, what am I missing? Where am I wandering? And uh, they, they just keep bringing each other back. And I, I see that kind of thing happening. I usually see health. Constant Repentance and faith happening all the time. And there's an art to this bringing back. So I want to be really careful to say this. It's not, it's not that easy to, to be the person bringing back. It's got to be done well. And Paul says in Galatians 6.1, If anyone is caught in a transgression, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And keep watch on yourself also, lest you be tempted. So what they're saying is to the person who's bringing back the wanderer, they're saying you need to be very gentle and you need to be very humble knowing that you also could get there. In fact, that you often do get there. So when someone is wandering and you're telling them the truth and trying to bring them back, you don't want to say things like, I can't believe you had that thought. That's not helpful to say something like that. Or, are you crazy? Or, what's wrong with you? Or, or let me tell you what to do. This is how you should approach your problem and give them some advice. You know, that kind of idea of chastising someone or giving them unwelcome advice is not the way you bring back a sinner from wandering. Paul says it's gentleness and it's humility. It's listening to someone attentively and sharing your own struggles maybe. And most of all, it's telling them the truth. It's telling them the truth of the good news, which is that they are made in God's image. They're deeply loved. They are flawed, uh, but they are also covered by the love of God, by the blood of Christ. They're covered. And that's how I want to end, because that's the word that James uses at the very end of the letter, is he uses the word to cover. Covers a multitude of sins. And what that means, that covering, is what David wrote in Psalm 51, after he had committed adultery and killed a man. David writes to God, he sings to God, hide your face from my sins and cover all my iniquities. And so covering means um, not only asking and knowing that you have forgiveness, but saying, I know that you don't even see my sin. 
I know that you don't even look at me as having sin. Hide your face from my sins in parallel with cover my iniquities. And so it's like God just puts something over those sins. You know, if you're having a conversation with someone and you have a huge bump on your nose, or like a giant uh, scar or something like that, and, and you, you, you just see them looking at that the whole time, it's an awful feeling. And, and so these blemishes we have, we, you don't want someone just always noticing those things. And what God is saying, or what David is saying, is that when I talk to you, God, uh, you, don't, you don't look at those things. You, you hide your face from those things. You look at me in the eyes and you love me in spite of these flaws. Psalm 85, 2. Uh, you forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your anger. Same word of covering. It's withdrawing all anger. Uh, it means every hint of dis- disapproval God draws away. Um, he never holds his anger over your head again. That's what cover means. So it's a little more than just forgiveness. It's also saying, um, not just you're forgiven, but you're righteous to me. And you're valuable to me. So it's not just getting rid of the negative, it's also adding the positive. That's what covering means. And it's, it's, it's so incredible that it's really, really hard to believe. Um, it's, it's almost hard to believe that that could be true. That God, the, the almighty, holy God, would look upon you and just cover all your sins. And when you're talking to someone and bringing them back, you've got to remind them of the covering of God. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Psalm 32.1. And even when David wrote that, he had no idea how much covering was going to happen. Even, even then, after having committed the murder, after having committed adultery, uh, David has no idea how God is going to go about this covering. He knew the covering was going to happen. Uh, he knew that it had happened somehow, but he didn't understand how it would happen. And we know that on this side of the coming of Jesus. We know how God covered. God says to you over and over again in your wanderings and your entanglement and lies... He says in Psalm 91, I will cover you with my feathers and under my wings you will find refuge. And it's a a metaphor for a bird, like a mother hen in a barnyard. And all these little chicks are running from a predator or maybe there's a fire coming. And the mother hen just puts her feathers, her wings over the little chicks. And, And the psalmist is saying that you, God, you cover us. You cover me. You cover your people under your wings. And when Jesus came, when God became a human and came in the flesh, uh, Jesus said to his people, as he was about to go and die for them, he was about to go get crucified. And he knew that they were the ones that were going to crucify him. And so he comes out to the edge of a cliff. He's looking over the city. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed to cover you under my wings as a mother hen does her chicks. And he's referring back to Psalm 91. And what he's saying there is, as I am going to, to cover you in my blood, and I'm going to pay for all your sins. And even as you are wandering and your soul is dying, I'm going to take that upon myself. And I'm going to give you my life. And that's what, that's what he does in this, in this meal. Is, um, he takes the death of our souls... And he fills us with his own life. So we believe as Christians that that God, the almighty creator, uh, came to earth for the main purpose 
of giving us this meal and then dying on a cross and rising from the grave, which this meal represent. And what we believe is that, uh, that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that in him we would become the righteousness of God. So we, we get all of his righteousness and he gets all of our sin. And this is called the great exchange. And it's what's happening at this table. And um, it's a mystery. We don't see it happening. It's uh, invisible. We don't know how it's happening. Christians have debated probably more than anything in the history of the church what is happening at this meal. And no one knows. But what we all agree upon is that he is really here. That he is truly present in a way that we cannot fathom. That is deeper than anything we could fathom. It's a great, great mystery. As Paul calls it. The great mysterion in Greek. And so if you are here tonight and you don't know exactly what to do right now because you're not sure what you believe. You know, like Jonah said, we want people to come from all different points on the spectrum of belief. And if you're not ready to, uh, to have crossed that line, you know, if, you don't, if you're not ready to say, I'm a believer and I trust in what is happening up here, um, then don't feel any pressure to come. I once um, was in churches where I didn't know whether I should take the Lord's Supper or not. And, uh, and I wish somebody had told me what to do at this moment. And um, it, so you don't have to feel any pressure. We don't want to force you into hypocrisy. But also, I want to make sure that you know that uh, if you're wandering and caught in a fog of lies, uh, but you believe this stuff, basically, no matter how weak your faith is, do not let that prevent you from coming to his table. He wants you to come and partake. And so on the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in memory of me.